Well, let's give our full attention now to God's Word, Deuteronomy 5. It's our Old Testament text. There are two texts, of course, which give us the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the heart of the moral law of, uh, of God and His people for the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 5 is one of them. And that's what we have here this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, And the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire and that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we've heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear and do it. 
And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I'm giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. It's our Old Testament reading. And our New Testament text, Matthew 5, as verses 17 through 32 listed here. We'll read verses 17 through 32, but the sermon's really going to focus on 17 to 30. Uh, we'll save the next two verses. They'll fit in with the, lot, with the next section when we get there, Lord willing, next week. So here now again, God's word, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Let's pray now together. Uh, We'll pray that he blesses the word to us. We'll also pray for our brother, uh, Ed Weirich, who appears to have gone in an ambulance to the hospital. So we'll pray for him as well. Let's pray. Father, we do lift up our brother, Ed, to you, and we pray that you'd have your hand on him, that you preserve and protect him and give him health, and keep him free from fear, and keep him trusting in you. We pray that you be with the Weirich family, keep them from any anxiety, help them to know that you are caring for them and for him. And Father, now as we turn our hearts to your word, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive it, Our hearts are shut to you unless you work. Unless by your Spirit you give us life, we will not live. So give us life according to your word. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. As Jesus was going about in these early days of his ministry, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, uh, he was making some people uncomfortable and uneasy. He was preaching a gospel of good news, a gospel of grace for sinners, forgiveness for sinners. He was holding out promises of forgiveness and blessing. He said, I've come to proclaim the year of God's favor, His grace. I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. I've come to heal the sick, save the lost. Wherever the gospel is preached that way, it seems like people are going to get uneasy. At least some people are going to start responding with with the question, wait a minute, how can you say that? How can God bless sinners? The same thing happened to Paul as he's preaching his gospel. Preaching it faithfully, people say, well, well, then why not sin so that grace may abound? If it's true that God saves us sheerly by his grace, only for the righteousness of Christ counted to us, then isn't that going to open up the door for, 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 for all the sin we want to do? Right? Just the floodgates of sin will be wide open and, and we can uh, sin as we please. Isn't that, isn't that what's going to happen if you say things like that? That God forgives sin so freely and graciously. It seems like this is happening uh, in Christ's ministry as well. You can imagine people listening to this Sermon on the Mount and some of them perhaps saying, He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Can you believe he said that? He's, he's, he's blessing People who are spiritually bankrupt. That's not what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament says, Blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night, who doesn't walk in the counsel of the sinners and the wicked and the scoffers. Right? Blessed is that man. That's the good life. Obedience. Not this life that Jesus is talking about, this blessing for those who are aware just how sinful they are and their need for His grace. Apparently, Jesus knew that either people were already starting to say these kinds of things and think in these kinds of ways in response to his preaching, or that they soon would be. And so, he cuts it off from the get-go. He wants everyone to know that even as he's preaching the gospel of God's grace, he's also proclaiming God's law. He's also teaching God's law. And that the law has a huge place in his kingdom, a huge role to play in his kingdom, right? He's the king. He's come into his own. He's come to his kingdom. And now he's saying, now here's what the law is in my kingdom as well. He wants his disciples to know, and loved ones, he wants you and I as his disciples to know what the place of the law is. We've come into his kingdom. We're we're citizens of his kingdom by his grace. How do we live here? How do we live under his lordship? Is it important that we think about this? What's the place of the law for us? 
This is the question that this text is addressing and that we are going to wrestle with this morning. What did Jesus do with the law? What do I need to do with the law? What's his attitude towards the law? What does my attitude need to be towards the law? How do I understand it? What role does it have in my life? As Jesus um, teaches us here, he lays out three things for us. First, he tells us he fulfills the law in verses 17 to 18. Then he tells us he enforces the law in verses 19 to 20. And third, we'll see him apply the law in verses 21 through 30. So he fulfills the law, he enforces the law, and he applies the law. So our first heading, Jesus fulfills the law. This is verses 17 and 18. What's the first lesson in the school of Christ? So you've signed up for the course. It's the law of God. What's the first lecture? What's the first lesson he teaches us on? It's that he himself fulfills it. He fulfills the law. Jesus starts here by telling us what he didn't come to do. He says, I didn't come to destroy the law. He didn't come to avoid the law, abrogate the law, make it no longer apply. In fact, he says that would be an impossible thing for him to do. He says that the law is going to last forever. He says not a jot or tittle will pass away until all is accomplished. Those words refer to the smallest pen strokes in the Hebrew language. Right? They have these letters, and, and the only thing that differentiates one Hebrew letter sometimes from another is just the least little serif, the least little pen stroke that you put on there. And Jesus is saying not, not the dot of an eye, not the little hook on the end of, of, of any letter is going to perish from the law till all is accomplished. He didn't come to do away with it. What's the opposite of that? I didn't come to destroy the law. What do you expect him then to say? What's the opposite of destroying it? Well, we, I think, might expect him to say, I came to keep the law. Or I came to preserve the law. Or promote the law. This is what the scribes and Pharisees do. They guard the law. They, they make sure they keep it. They make sure other people keep it. Is that what Jesus has come to do as well? What does he say? He says, I've come to fulfill the law. What's significant there? Right? This, is, this is shocking that he would say such a thing. He's come to fulfill the law, and he says the law and the prophets. It's a jaw-dropping thing for him to say. That he's come to fulfill it, right? In other words, he's saying he's not just the fulfillment of this prophecy, that prophecy. We've seen Matthew already show us a lot of the fulfillments of Jesus' birth narratives uh, and, and the prophecies Jesus has fulfilled in those things in the first few chapters. But now he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of all of it. Law, prophets, whole thing. I'm the fulfillment of all of it. Every little pen stroke is about me. In fact, he's saying, as he says, that he fulfills the law, that the Old Testament is incomplete without him. Right, you, 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 what, what, we use this word fulfilled, right? We order something online. When is the order fulfilled? Right? The order isn't fulfilled when it's still just sitting in the warehouse. It's fulfilled when it's actually en route to your house. Right? And then it comes and it's there and it's on your doorstep and there's the package you've been waiting for. It's fulfilled. It's here. It's complete. Jesus is saying, the Old Testament is not complete until I come and fulfill the whole thing. You don't understand what the law is apart from Jesus Christ. There's only one person 
who can say such things about the law, isn't there? No ordinary human being could say this, that he's the point of the law. Only the lawgiver himself can say such a thing. But only the Lord, only Yahweh, who, who gave the law there on Mount Sinai, can say, by the way, this law is all about me. And we see that. We saw it already. God says, um, in, as he gives the, the law to his people on Mount Sinai, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, obey me. The law is about your relationship with me. The Lord God says that. And Jesus comes and he says, I say to you, Here's my law. Here's the divine law of God. That's the kind of authority he's claiming here. So Jesus fulfills the law. But what exactly does he mean by this? He's saying it's all about him. But but, but, but what does that mean practically? How does that get worked out? What does that look like? Um, uh, His arrival as king is going to change some things. It's going to alter some things. Really, things are going to dramatically and fundamentally change in a lot of ways. Right? The king has come into his own. So some new rules are going to apply, and some old ones are going to pass out of, out of use, even as he fulfills them. What does all this mean for how the whole law of the Old Testament is applied to us? The king has come. What's changed? Well, you can think about the details of the Old Testament law here. Um, Jesus means, as he refers to the law, he's referring to the Torah, the the instruction of the first five books of Moses. Um, And he's also in particular concerned with the commandments in those books. But those those books, they they teach us of different types of commandments, different categories of the commandments of God, different types of laws. And one kind is ceremonial laws. You've noticed this if you read through your Bible and you're reading through those uh, books of Moses there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You're reading through, you see all these laws, and some of them feel like they have very little to do with you. Right? You've got all these specific rules about the sacrificial system, about the offerings they're supposed to make, and the, the way the priests are supposed to dress and wash their hands and come into the tabernacle, and all these details about, about worship and what kind of offering you, you're supposed to give when. What, is, what do we do with all this? How does Jesus fulfill all this? He says, I fulfill it because I'm the sacrifice. I'm the priest. I'm the temple. I'm all of it. Right? He's he's the one who lays down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He's the priest who offers forever intercession for us. His priesthood never ends. He's the one who cleanses us, makes us right with God. And, And he's saying, I've come to fulfill these Old Testament laws in this way by being everything they were pointing to, all these ceremonies. You might say, well, wait a minute. Um, didn't, didn't Jesus just say none of the laws would pass away? So what is this business of him fulfilling the ceremonial law? And now it seems the ceremonial law has been, you know, abrogated. It no longer applies. Well, think about it like this. When someone graduates from high school and goes to college, does that... Does going to college destroy what applied in high school? Or think about it maybe better like this. Um, If you get married, you've been engaged, and then you get married, does the marriage destroy the engagement? No, it fulfills it. The whole purpose of the engagement is the marriage. And that's what Jesus does with the ceremonial law, with those sacrifices, with priests and all that. He says, that was the engagement. This is the marriage. The whole purpose of that was pointing to me. The true sacrifice, 
The one who can really pay for your sins. That's what he's come to do. But then there's other laws. You keep reading, and you're reading through those Old Testament books there early in the Bible, and you see that there's not only these laws about the sacrifices and these laws about uh, the priests and all that, there's also these laws that seem to be civil laws, right? How do you treat your neighbor when, when his ox breaks out of his pen and he comes over and he kills your ox? What do you do in that situation? Or what do you do in a situation where someone accidentally commits manslaughter and someone's out to avenge that? What do you do in that situation? And, and the laws of Moses have these, these situations set up where this is what you do in this circumstance or this one and these principles that you're to apply. Does Jesus fulfill these? How does he fulfill the civil law? These laws applied to how the social society of Israel was supposed to, supposed to work. Well, think about it, right? In the Old Testament, the people of God, it's, it's, the, it's the church. It's the heavenly people of God. And at the same time, it's coextensive with a nation, with a particular political power, Israel. There And, and uh, just as uh, uh, and, and, and that uh, nation has the power of the sword, the power to carry out judgment, and so these civil laws apply then, and they, are, uh, they show us how just and how fair God is, how equitable he is, how compassionate he is. But again, what's, what's the nation of Israel pointing forward to? It's pointing forward to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly promised land, the heavenly people of God, and it's showing us the justice that will prevail there. And so Jesus comes and he says, I'm, I'm bringing a kingdom and it's not the kingdom of this world. It's a heavenly kingdom and my people are not of this world. And so now there's this, no longer is there a, 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 an exact uh, you know, correlation between a particular nation and God's people that's been separated. So the civil laws don't apply as they did in the Old Testament. There's good principles there that we can learn from, but we're not necessarily supposed to carry them over because Jesus has fulfilled it. He's brought about the new city the new kingdom, the kingdom that is the kingdom of heaven. But then there's more, isn't there? You keep on reading, and you're reading these other commandments in the law. Things like don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What about these? How does Jesus fulfill these? What does he do with these laws? First and most importantly, he fulfills this part of the law, what we call the moral law, by keeping it perfectly. Every single commandment. We, we've read them this morning. We've confessed our sins in light of several of them. But uh, Jesus keeps all of it perfectly. Every single one of the Ten Commandments and all the rest, he, he loves God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength. There's never a moment in Christ's life where he loves anyone or anything more than he loves his Heavenly Father. Never a moment when he looks for satisfaction, reward, and joy in anything above his heavenly Father or, or reverences or fears man instead of his heavenly Father. There's never a moment when Christ doesn't love others exactly as he would want to be treated himself and as he loves himself. There's never a moment where he speaks a harsh thought or has the slightest lustful inclination or, gets, or, or becomes bitter or resentful towards anybody. He's perfectly keeping and fulfilling God's moral law. If you were to take a picture of Christ's life, and you took a picture of God's law, if you could, 
and you lay them, two pieces of paper with a picture on each, one of Christ's life, one of the law, you lay them on top of each other, and you held it up to the light, you would see an exact replica. No one line, no one piece out of order. A perfect match between Christ and the moral law of God. That's how faithfully he keeps it. He's an, act, he's an exact reproduction of the moral law of God in his heart, his mind, his will, his actions. Why did Jesus do this? He fulfills the law like this. Why? Because it's exactly what you and I need, isn't it? Right, as God gives this law, he's telling us, this is the obedience that I require of you. That you, if you want to receive my blessing, come into my presence, be, be in my kingdom, receive, receive the, the blessings of the covenant, you must obey. And, and really, God is saying, I need to be able to take your life, a picture of it, and a picture of the moral law, and I need to put them together and hold it up to the light, and I need to see an exact reproduction of that law in your life. And if you don't have that, there's no heaven, no reward for you, only judgment. So what do we need? We need someone else's record for us. That perfect righteousness for us. Because our lives are way out of line. We break that law at every point. There's no point where that replica of his law is is reproduced in me. No point. We can't keep the law. Jesus fulfills the law by keeping it for us. That's the gospel. The good news. I'm counted righteous in Christ. God looks at me and he sees that exact reproduction of the moral law counted to me from Christ. He says, well done. He welcomes me into his presence. I'm his forever. But then the thought comes, and this is how we started. What does this mean for our obedience? Jesus has fulfilled the law. Ceremonial law, civil law, moral law. We said the ceremonial and civil commands no longer apply. What about the moral ones? Grace has come. Do we walk in sin that grace may abound? If Christ has so perfectly obeyed for me, why do I need to obey? What would Jesus say if you asked him that question? How do you think he'd respond to you? He tells us here. He tells us, I have come as the king. And yes, I've come to fulfill the law, and I have come to keep the law for sinners so that they can be counted righteous before God. At the same time, if you are mine and you belong to me and that's happened to you, then you need to, you need to show some evidence of it and some fruit of it. You will show evidence and fruit of it in your life. And so we see him now as he turns from talking about how he fulfills the law to talk about how he enforces and then applies the law. So our second heading, Jesus enforces the law, verses 19 and 20. Loved ones, listen, uh, in these verses here, Jesus tells us that there is no room in his kingdom for a loose or casual attitude towards his law, towards personal holiness, towards obedience. That you can't be nonchalant in your approach to sanctification in his kingdom. Listen to his words, verses 19 to 20. He says, Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
How important is our obedience to Christ? How much does it matter to Him? How seriously does He take it? Absolutely seriously. You can't shrug off the least of His commandments. He says here uh, that if you, uh, if you uh, break one of the least of His commandments, teach others to do so, you'll be called least in the kingdom. But He doesn't just mean you'll, you'll, have, a, you'll have a back seat, you'll, you'll be in the lowest rank, but you'll still be in it. Because... He goes on to say, if you don't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter. He means, if you break one of the least of his commandments, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness is more than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. This is the bare minimum he's talking about. Why does Jesus point to the scribes and Pharisees? Of course, they're the religious leaders, right? They're the seminary professors, the pastors and teachers, the ones who everyone thinks they're the holy ones. They're the, the serious ones, the real Christians, perhaps. Um, but their law-keeping was a surface-level thing. right? It's all at the surface. And they kept the law as, as an abstract, mechanical standard, right? like a speed limit. You follow the rule, and you don't get in trouble. Right? It's not a personal thing not about loyalty to the Lord. This is the rule, and I'm going to follow it and obey it because I'm the kind of person who does that sort of thing. That was their obedience. right? And, and that's not what Jesus wants. He wants you to obey more like a child obeying his parents because he loves them and he wants to please them. Jesus doesn't want his disciples, his followers, to be obeying him like they're following this mechanistic, abstract set of rules but like children loving their father. He wants personal, loyal, loving obedience. Heart-level obedience. Not the abstract things that the Pharisees excelled in. Because that's just surface stuff. If you dug beneath the surface of the Pharisees' heart, you'd find all kinds of self-seeking, self-pleasing, self-serving, self-righteousness. Jesus wants righteousness all the way down loyalty to God all the way down. If He came and excavated your heart, what would He find? Just a righteous surface or love for God at every layer all the way down. That's what He wants. Not this this rules-obsessed facade righteousness, but a heart that wants to please Him. So Jesus did not relax the law. He's come to fulfill it, to keep it, to give you His righteousness, to make you right with God, but He does not relax the law and what He requires of us. He wants our hearts, our whole hearts. Loved ones, what about you? Do you relax God's law for yourself? I think we have a tendency to do this sometimes. Right? We think, as long as I believe in Christ as my Savior, I'm all set. Right. My, my obedience, yes, I know it's important, but it's only so important. On a scale of 1 to 10, if obedience, right, scale of 1 to 10, a 1 is it's not important at all, 10 is it's vitally essential, I'm a comfortable 6, maybe a 7, an 8 on a really good day. Right? But, but is obedience this kind of matter? What does Jesus say? How are we to live in his kingdom? He says we are to keep the whole law with our whole hearts. And it's a vital matter that we take it seriously. If we've received that righteousness that He holds out to us by faith, not by works, 
receive that grace of His and we're saved by it, then we will want these things and grow in these things and we'll take our personal holiness and law-keeping of God seriously. And that's what He wants from us. Do you have that, loved ones? An all-controlling sense of loyalty to your King, Jesus Christ, working itself out in fastidious obedience to His every command. What does that look like? Jesus applies it to us and He shows us what it looks like. This is our third heading. Jesus applies the law, verses 21 through 30. Most of the rest of Jesus' sermon on the Mount here, chapters 5 through 7, is going to be an application of the law. As He shows His disciples, shows them what this uh, law-keeping is supposed to look like. He's applying the law. And we're just going to look at the first two commands He gives here this morning. Verses 21 30. Now, of all the Ten Commandments, um, which ones come to mind as the ones you're most likely to have broken or the most likely to break? If you're trying to convince someone they're guilty before God's law, what are you going to start with? You say you're going through the Ten Commandments. Which ones are you going to highlight for them? Which ones do you feel personally guilty about? Lying, maybe. Right? We've all done that coveting, wanting something that's not ours, so we've all done that. Where does Jesus go? Murder. Adultery. Why does he start there? He starts with murder. You shall not murder. And he takes that commandment and he says, let me show you what this means. Right? This is the tip of the iceberg. There's a, there's a whole mountain beneath it of, of meaning and implications and demands. He says, if you are angry with your brother in your heart, You're a murderer before God. If you lose your temper and you're harsh and you're bitter and resentful and sullen towards your brother, if you insult your brother and call him a fool, you're guilty of murder before God. This includes all of us. It includes our siblings, kids. Think think hard about this one, right? Jesus is saying you can't yell at your siblings, lose your temper at your siblings. This isn't just, Jesus doesn't just mean our our physical brothers and sisters. He means all the people in God's covenant family. We can't do this to each other. How important is this? Verses 23 to 24, he tells us it's so important that if you come to the temple with your gift, and you realize you're there in the temple, here to offer your gift to the Lord, and you realize, you remember, your brother has something against you, that you sinned against him, offended him in some way, then stop right there. Leave the gift. Go find your brother and be reconciled to him before you come and offer your gift. Then come back to the temple and worship. He's saying the, the proof of our love to God is in our obedience to his commands. We can't be angry and, and murderous in our hearts towards each other and then show up to worship on the Lord's Day, sing the songs, pray the prayers, put on that good surface-level righteousness, but have a heart underneath that is refusing to submit to King Christ. And we have to bow to Him and go and be reconciled with each other. So, loved ones, think carefully about Christ's words here. When you come to worship, is there some way in which I've sinned against my brother? Maybe it's another church member. Uh, maybe, it's, um, maybe it's your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents. Is there something between you and them? Have you sinned against them in some way? 
Don't come to worship without settling that with them first. Going, saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Don't let it fester. Don't let it cause separation. If, if we let this anger go, it's what it will do. It will cause either an explosion or just a slow and just as damaging separation. Make it right. As Jesus is teaching this, he then suddenly he does something really fascinating in the next few verses. He uses another example to drive this point home is applying this command, don't murder, don't be angry with your brother. And as he does so, he shows us just how well he knows our hearts because um, he gives us this example of taking your brother to court. When do you take someone to court? When you think they're in the wrong and you're in the right. The last thing you want to do when you know you're in the wrong and they're in the right is go to court. What's Jesus do? He says, you're thinking that, that you're going to take your brother to court. Right, so as you, maybe he's saying, as, as you listen to my first example about insulting your brother, having someone think against your brother, being angry in your heart towards him, and coming to worship and realizing you had sinned against him. Jesus is saying, maybe you heard me say that and you thought to yourself, well, I'm all set then. I haven't sinned against anybody. Sure, lots of other people have sinned against me, but me, no, I, I'm, I'm good. I haven't sinned against anyone else. Lots of people should be coming to me and apologizing. I don't need to go to anyone else and apologize to them. Jesus is, is, is pointing out here that in our hearts, we're, we are quick to say, I'm the innocent party. I'm not the guilty one. Right? And I can go to worship with a clean conscience without worrying about this and, and thinking, right, uh, they've sinned against me, and I'm going to go get exactly what they deserve me. I'm going I'm to drag it out of them. I'm going to take them to court and sue them if I have to. Maybe I'll drag them before God himself and say, Lord, judge that brother for what he did to me. I'm not the sinner here. Jesus says, if that's your attitude, that they're guilty and you're innocent every time, be careful. But he's saying, if you have that attitude and you're dragging your brother before God and demanding justice, watch out. Because God will probably turn to you and say, you're the sinner. Don't think that you're innocent, he's saying. Go be reconciled. Go seek forgiveness for your sin. How serious is our Lord Jesus as he speaks on these things? Is there really a lot of danger if we don't do what he tells us here and we continue in our anger? He says yes. He threatens us with hell itself. He uses pictures from earthly judgment, the council, the judgment, but he's really talking about the heavenly judgment that he himself will bring. Um, and he's saying that if, if you keep this anger and you don't deal with it, then you are really in danger of hell and the judgment of God. Right? If, if you're, he's not saying if you're, unless you're perfect and you never get angry, but he's saying if, if you're not seeking God's grace, if you're letting anger go unchecked and bitterness go unchecked and you're not seeking forgiveness from the Lord and grace to help you change, then you're in real danger of God's judgment. You're a murderer in his sight. Loved ones, Jesus is not playing games. He's commanding us to repent and obey. Then he turns his attention to another commandment. This one, again, some people probably feel safe about this one, adultery. But Jesus doesn't mean just having an extramarital affair. 
He means lust, right? Again, the, tip of the commandment is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole bunch of implications underneath it that God intends for us to hear in that commandment. He says if you have lusted after someone, you've committed adultery. If your thoughts, if your desires, if your imaginations, right? if you have the least immoral desire of any kind, you're guilty of adultery. If you even wish that you could enjoy some of those thoughts, some of those desires, you're guilty of adultery. It's not enough to just abstain from outright adultery, Jesus is saying. You've got to have a heart that at its core hates the very idea of it. That's how holy he wants us to be. He requires us to be. Right? This purity that runs all the way down through all the layers of our hearts, this Complete commitment to the Lord and loyalty to Him all the way down in our hearts at every layer so that there is no place for sin to get a foothold. And again, he, he, he presses this on us. He tells us the importance of this, that if we don't pursue this, then we're going to face the judgment of God. That if we're walking in unrepentant sin, and this as well, we're going to face His judgment. We've got to be killing sin, as John Owen said, or sin will be killing us. Is there high stakes here? Loved ones, is this the level of holiness that you're seeking? Is this the kind of holiness that you want to be seeking? Jesus says, right, be brutal. Be merciless with yourself, right? Cut out your eye, cut off your hand, not literally, but he's saying go to whatever lengths necessary to put sin to death to get rid of those sinful habits, right? The cost now of self-denial is a whole lot less than the cost that God will demand for you at the day of judgment. So put it to death. Don't play games with sin. Don't tolerate any of it. Loved ones, this is Jesus' attitude towards the law and personal holiness. This is what he demands from us. This is what he did, he kept, he fulfilled for our sakes. And it's what he then says, follow me. You too live this way. So is this, think about this carefully. Is this how you treat his law? Is this how you think about your walk with him and your sanctification, your personal holiness? Is it important to you as it is to him? Do you think maybe Jesus didn't really mean to sound so severe? That he sort of winked as he said these things and said, we all know that I'm just trying to get your attention and you're justified by grace. Don't worry about it. Of course not. He fulfilled the law himself and he did it also so that he could fulfill the law in us. Paul writes about this, Romans chapter 8, 3 to 5. He says that God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus fulfilled the law, and He wants to fulfill it in us as well by His Spirit. So, loved ones, seek these things. Give yourselves to these things. What commandments do you count as you know, things you can sort of shrug off and be cavalier towards? Which ones? All of them? Some of them? Honoring your parents? Not lusting, not coveting, not murdering, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, idolatry. Can you play with these things? Keeping the Sabbath, right? Can we, can we take these things as though they're not serious and the Lord doesn't intend for us to give all our heart, soul, mind, and strength by His grace to keeping them? 
So, loved ones, seek the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek His grace to cover you for all your failures and all your sins. He's sufficient for you. His righteousness will cover you. But then also seek His Spirit that you might walk according to the commandments He's given us. They're, they're not a burden. They're a joyful thing. Uh, this is what it is to walk in the joy of Christ and to know the blessing and smile and favor of God. Uh, this, is, this is what it is to have a heart that is united to fear His name, a heart that loves Him, So let us seek these things. Let's seek His grace for these things. Let's seek by His Spirit to put our sins to death and walk according to His holy commandments. Let's pray together. O Lord, teach us Your way and lead us in it. Give us grace for it. Give us joy in it. Give us hearts for it. We repent of our our lawlessness. We repent of our casual attitude towards Your law. Uh, We repent of uh, even a lack of desire for these things. So be at work in us. Get to work in our hearts and change us into the image of Christ, our beloved Savior, in whose righteousness alone we hope. Amen.